At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, and welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan, in once again for Kelly Evans, and here's what is ahead. Inflation does not seem to be going anywhere just yet. The producer price index rising more than expected. Consumer price is the big one. That's due out tomorrow. All, while signs here, point to more Fed tightening, and the Bank of England still easing trying to pump more money into the system. We're going to examine the fallout and try to connect the dots. The NASDAQ once again underperforming, but trying to snap a five-session losing streak. The index near two-year lows. What will it take to finally turn these markets around? And in the middle of it all, is earnings season about to kick off? you got all the big banks on deck. Our trader will give advice on how to trade those earnings. We're going to get to all that and more over the next 59 or so minutes. Well, let's begin with Mr. Dominic Chu. And the market numbers. A little bit of green today, Don. We do, Mr. Brian Sullivan. And we do see some modest moves here overall. Now, Brian mentioned the multi-day, five-day losing streak for the S&P and the NASDAQ. So if this were to stay at these levels right now, we would snap that streak. But it wouldn't be by very much, and it wouldn't be dramatically. So that could be a good or a bad thing. The S&P 500 is a hair below 3,600 right now, 3,598, up nine points, just about one quarter of 1%. To give you an idea of the trading range so far today, it is rather muted. We were up about 20 points at the highs of the session and down about 15 at the low. So tilting again towards the higher end of that range. The Dow Industrial is up one half of 1%, 129 points, 29,368. The Nasdaq Composite, 30 points higher, 10,454, about one quarter, 1% gain. So modest moves right now. Some of the concern right now that's playing out more heavily than in other parts of the market is in the commodity complex, specifically economically sensitive or cyclical parts. West Texas Intermediate Crude is down 2.5%, and that's off the session lows, by the way, as this growing narrative about a recession, not just here in the U.S., but globally as well, starts to weigh on these markets. You've got a lot of that fear priced in with WTI Crude. Brian mentioned the business-level producer price index numbers this morning and the consumer price indexes tomorrow. Well, you got WTI crude kind of at the center of that trade right now about whether or not we see prices start to fall for those commodities. Crude still continues to show some near-term weakness. And then one stock you want to pay attention to today is Lyft. The reason why is because it's up 6.5%, 7% so far today off the session highs. But Lyft, the ride-sharing company, hit a post-IPO record low. Never been as low in yesterday's session. It's bouncing a bit today, helped in part by analysts at Gordon Haskett, who upgraded this stock to a buy. They think that the company gets better off as the driver shortage starts to alleviate. Also, because the stock has lost about three quarters of its value in a year, it could be priced for a good entry point. So watch Lyft, the gig economy in focus. But again, one of a concert of different stocks, Brian, that have been high profile at one point and are now at post-IPO lows. Lyft is one of them getting a bounce today. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Don, thank you very much. Well, it is a big week for the markets. We say that because the CPI inflation data is out tomorrow. That, by the way, has been moving markets all year. You've got earnings season kicking off on Friday. Friday, also the day the Bank of England will end its bond-buying program. And you remember, those headlines yesterday spooking the markets a bit. We don't talk a lot about the U.K. bond market, but it's been a big deal globally, and we've got to know how much of a factor that might become here. Is the U.K. contained? 
or is there a real risk of global contagion? Let's talk about it all and kind of figure out what to do here and maybe even get some stock ideas. Joining us, Sandy Villery, co-portfolio manager of the Villery Balance Fund and Peter Bookfar, chief investment officer at Bleakley Financial Group, CNBC contributor. Peter, I'm going to start with you, go to a few questions, then go to Sandy. The Bank of England stuff and these LDI, liability-driven investments, it's all new. I mean, even for market participants, it's wonky. In plain terms, can you explain to us what has happened in England and whether or not you view that as a real contagion risk for the U.S. markets? So simplistically, pension funds in the U.K., not all but many, uh, use this LDI that you just mentioned as a way to enhance returns in a low interest rate environment pre what we've seen this year uh, in order to meet their obligations. So when we saw a sharp jump in gilt yields at the end of September, that created a lot of margin calls. They were four sellers of gilt. The Bank of England had to come in to calm things down. So here we are a couple of weeks later. We know that Bailey said, OK, Friday is it. And based on the action in the gilt today, maybe, just maybe, we've seen enough deleveraging to put this fire out for now as 10- and 30-year gilt yields closed unchanged on the day. As for what it means for us and other central banks, well, it's these central banks trying to extricate themselves from such extraordinary monetary policy over the last couple of years that there are going to be plenty of bumps and accidents along the road. The U.K. had theirs, and, and we're going to have ours here as well. Why do you say that we're going to have ours here as well? What, what are you seeing that would make you say that with what sounds like a pretty high level of confidence, Peter? Well, when you, when you go a long period of time with extraordinarily low interest rates, you encourage a lot of people to borrow money. And now that you have a higher cost of capital, those, those, those that borrowed too much, those that borrowed so much where they now have to refinance in a much higher rate environment, there's, those are where the accidents are going to be. Also, we have to watch to see if there's any dislocations in the U.S. Treasury market. We're losing three key buyers, the Fed, banks, and foreigners. So we need other buyers. We'll find other buyers. It's just a question of what price and whether yields need to go higher in order to entice those buyers to fill that gap. Sandy, you're, you're a portfolio manager focused on U.S. stocks. Now you're hit, watching CNBC and seeing these headlines about the Bank of England and pension funds and, and gilts. What do you make of all this and how has it impacted, if at all, how you manage your money? What are you watching most closely right now? Yeah, and so you know we, we do want to make sure that there isn't a lot of contagion, and it's interesting to see the, the the Bank of England go from you know really trying to stave off inflation to all of a sudden they're back there trying to buy bonds, uh, which is quite a quite a uh, shift when they're when they're trying to have yields go up. Um, so we we keep it in mind, but we do want to focus on on U.S. stocks. We do think that uh, we're we're basically the cleanest shirt in the dirty laundry. You can see what the dollar's done versus a basket of other currencies. And, uh, and we're, we're excited about a lot of our small cap uh, domestic uh, companies that don't have to export uh, and things like that. And, and so we're, we're, we're dialed into the, 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 the domestic companies. Yeah. So you're not you're not worried. I'm not going to call it a Lehman moment because that was much bigger, much more different. I, I, maybe a, a mini Lehman diet Lehman. I don't know. It doesn't sound like you're that worried about what's happening there or in Europe impacting some of your core holdings here. 
Yeah, I mean, we're, we're always uh, we're always trying to figure out what what that black swan event could be. Um, but it, it, if 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 I knew it wouldn't be a black swan event, I guess so. Uh, we're we're definitely focused on just doing what we do best, which is just bottom up stock picking, and uh, and and we're just going to keep keep an eye on the you know uh, French Italian bond markets to see if there's any any contagion from from all of this. So uh, we just want to focus on what we do best, which is stock picking. Yeah, we'll get to a couple of those picks in a second. Get more from Peter right now, though. Just sit tight, guys, because I do want to get some breaking news on bond auctions. They become a really big deal. Rick Santelli tracking the action at CME. And how has this auction looked? You gave it a, a C plus because you said you were in a good mood yesterday. What about today, Rick? Uh, you know, I'm in a good mood today, but it's still a D plus, dog plus. Uh, a very, very unique auction. Let's go through it, shall we? $32 billion. 10-year notes, technically 9-year, 10-month, the reopen. Now, the yield, 3.93. Where was the when issued trading? It's straight up 1 Eastern, right before the auction button up, around 3.91 and a half. So the ultimate yield at the auction was higher. Higher yield means a lower price. Big mark off for that. And the bid to cover 2.34. Well, you could find one of the same size in July of this year. But to find a smaller bid to cover, you have to go all the way back to Dees of 2020. But here's the biggie. The indirect bidders at 56.8, and this is foreigners, is the lightest since November of 2020, where direct bidders like pension funds and entities that could put bids right in they were at the best level of 23.5 since 2014. And dealers took a big amount at 19.7 versus 10 auction average of 15%. So not a great auction. Tomorrow we clean up with the 30-year bond auction. And with CPI tomorrow, I could understand why many investors thought, maybe I'll just dabble in a secondary market and not be too aggressive. Back to you, Sully. D-plus from Professor Santelli. Rick, thank you very much. All right, let's go back now to Sandy and Peter. You know, I guess, Peter, the thing about it is, and, and I'm not trying to make a thing about it because it may turn out to be nothing, but I do remember 2009. We were talking a lot about Greece in 2008. Everyone said it's Greece. Nobody cares. The bond market what, that doesn't matter. A couple of voices were there. And then I went over there in 2009 and people were throwing Molotov cocktails at the banks and they were protesting and rioting in Syntagma Square nearly every day. Is there some chance at all that this could be a bigger story, either the UK or macro Europe, than we are thinking about? Because these things don't hit you over the head. They kind of pop out of nowhere like a rat. Well, when you, when you look over the last couple of years, where was the excess? It was in sovereign bonds. It was an era of negative interest rates and zero interest rates and massive QE. That's where all the excess went. And now we're seeing an unwinding of, of, of that massive bubble. And it's going to lead, as we've seen, to a higher cost of capital environment. And that many business models that worked when rates were at zero and in Europe when they were negative don't work at, at current rates. And while current rates are still, still historically low, they're much higher than they were. And I think that's the new environment that we're going to have that we've become accustomed to. And not just in terms yeah. of valuing assets, but in how businesses run and how households borrow, households now having to pay 7% on a mortgage rate, for example. Yeah, and, and we're lucky we're not in the UK where a great percentage of borrowers are going to, they take a lot more arms than we do, adjustable rate mortgages. They're going to have a huge, millions of homes in the UK are going to reset next year, probably at double or triple their mortgage rates. Peter, thank you. Sandy, before we let you go, 
couple of picks here because our viewers want to know what to do. A Palomar Technologies, a pool corp. You think these are immune, obviously, to UK. They're immune to higher rates. They're immune to inflation. Yeah, I, I, I like both of them. Palomar actually got downgraded by KBW this morning, so it's off a little bit, and that probably sets up as a pretty good uh, opportunity to buy it. And then uh, pool, I think, is just kind of confused as people think it's a you know a bit of a housing stock, even though 80% of their revenue is really recurring in nature. That's just the boring repair and maintenance of your swimming pool. So two that I would buy right here. Sandy Villery, Peter Bookfarg, gentlemen, good conversation. Do appreciate it. Thank you. All right, now let's talk oil, OPEC, and global geopolitics. Oil right now is a bit lower, down about 2.5%. This after OPEC actually cut its forecast for global demand growth this year for the fourth time since April. But while this is a cut, keep in mind, this is a cut to growth estimates. OPEC still sees demand growing overall, but only by 2.6 million barrels per day. That is 460,000 barrels fewer than in the previous forecast. As for next year, OPEC is cutting its growth outlook by 360,000 barrels a day, though it still expects demand to exceed pre-pandemic levels. Now, this, of course, is not all that's going on with OPEC. Because of their cut last week, the Saudi-U.S. relationship seems more in jeopardy. President Biden talking about taking some kind of action against Saudi Arabia And more talk from Congress about cutting off arms sales to the Saudis because of that OPEC cut. All this is the Wall Street Journal broke what can only be called really a blockbuster story yesterday. That the White House apparently tried to make a deal with OPEC saying that we would buy oil to refill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve if OPEC put off its cut decision for one month. Which has some on the more cynical side saying, hey, one month, that's just after the midterm elections. Obviously, there's a lot going on here. Let's talk about it all. Kayla Tausche joining us in D.C. with some new headlines on all this, plus some stuff from National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Kayla. Well, Brian, President Biden will be holding in-person bipartisan consultations with members of Congress on the Saudi relationship when they return to Washington. That's according to National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, who said that because there are no pending arms sales to Saudi Arabia, that no imminent decision is required there, despite many members of Congress calling on the administration to halt any future uh, any future deals that they would make with the kingdom. Now, Sullivan made these comments to reporters in conjunction with the delayed release of the national security strategy. That was originally expected to come out this spring, but Sullivan acknowledged that the quickly evolving situation in Ukraine made that timeline imprudent in his words. The strategy does outline what it calls a decisive decade ahead with a focus on constraining Russia, which it calls profoundly dangerous, and says definitively that the U.S. will not allow Russia to use nuclear weapons. The decisive decade will also include competing with China, which it calls the most consequential geopolitical challenge with technology, Taiwan, and trade at issue. Sullivan said the U.S. must turn the page on the traditional formula for trade. And when asked for the status of tariffs on China, Sullivan said the review would continue for several more months. So clearly the White House has a lot of irons in the fire here, Brian, and they're trying to chart out this decisive decade, and Sullivan's going to make more comments on that next hour. I had texted with a friend of mine who is uh, sort of in involved in and around politics in D.C. What's it like down there? The response, quote, days of rage. That's literally what I got back last night. How would you describe the mood in the White House and in and around all of this right now, Kayla? 
Well, I think it depends on when you check in with people who are working in the administration or uh, people who are on the other side of the aisle. Certainly, you know, there were several months ago, Republicans were feeling very good about their chances in the midterms and were essentially uh, talking up what they viewed as a, a historical flip in the midterm elections, even bigger than back in 2010. But then you fast forward to August, Democrats had a halo effect. They passed lots of key pieces of legislation. The president's approval rating was ticking up. Gas prices were going down and Democrats were feeling very good. Now, it's really a toss up, Brian, depending on who you talk to. I mean, you have a lot of uh, negative impacts for the administration, uh, but then you also have them trying to pull certain levers like uh, starting the process for student loan relief and uh, removing prior offenses for simple marijuana possession. So they're trying to make good on campaign promises, those things they can do with executive privilege uh, soon enough before the midterm. So it's in voters' memory, mm. but it still remains to be seen whether that will have a material impact when voters go to the polls. And a couple weeks. You, you and I were kind of team working last week on that on that oil rebuy story. I didn't have enough to go with it. Um, the Wall Street Journal story yesterday. I'm surprised, Kayla, that story is not getting more attention in other parts of the media. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. If you believe the reporting in the journal, they had four reporters, by the way, two of whom I know personally and do quality work that we're trying to delay the OPEC cut by making a deal with them that will buy more oil from them to refill the SPR. That seems like a really big deal. It's, it's an incredibly big deal uh, for several reasons, Brian. And by the way, four reporters and three contributors. They had a lot of people making calls uh, specifically sourced within the Saudi government on that story. Uh, but I think there's no question, Brian, that the midterms play such a key role in this. I mean, the fact that uh, the fact that there was a delay proposed for one month, that is not a coincidence. I asked Brian Deese, who's the top economic aide to the president, whether the decision to extend out the drawdowns from the strategic petroleum release into November November, when they were supposed to expire or end in October, whether that was directly tied to the midterms. And he did not take the bait on that question. But it is clear that November 8th is the date that is circled on the calendar. And anything that they can do to move the needle for voters between now and then, or at least avoid uh, some of these scenarios where things like gas prices would go up before then, they're trying to do whatever they can before then. So I think it was a blockbuster story, especially because oil majors had been in discussions with the administration about potentially selling oil to replenish the reserves uh, by fourth quarter of next year. So there had been these discussions with a lot of U.S. companies thinking that they were going to be the ones replenishing. And instead, the U.S. was talking to Saudi about doing it. We'll see how it pans out from here, Brian. Yeah, at 75 or maybe slightly below on Brent crude, when we talked about it a couple years ago, when oil was at 22 and 25, and it was called a, a bailout for big oil back then. Now we're at 75 or 95, whatever it might be, Kayla. It's, it's, it's politics. It's Chinatown. Jake. Yes, and it's unclear where the price is going to go from here. And people I talked to within the administration say it takes several weeks to affect a decision to actually buy oil to put back in the SPRO. So even if it's at 75 for a couple weeks, that's really not seen as a long enough time to actually put that plan in motion. Yeah. And there's an expectation that oil prices are just going to go up uh, as we go into the winter here. So who's to say when they're going to actually do it? Uh, well, we can say that I don't think this story is anywhere near being over Kayla Tausche. Great stuff, no. as always. Thank you very much. Kayla from the White House. All right, pretty big story there. If you didn't read it, by the way, go to the journal, check it out. All right, one block down, many to go on this program. And coming up, if you're still thinking of betting on big tech, our next guest says 
Look at the platforms. Don't look at the services. What that means ahead. Plus, mortgage rates for many now above 7%. What it means for mortgage resets and new buyers ahead when the exchange rolls on right after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. All right, welcome back. I'm going to tell you something you already know. Tech has been a wreck. Rising rates slamming stocks as markets have had to revalue almost all estimates. This has hit higher valuation tech stocks most of all. For example, one big tech ETF, ticker XLK, you may own it, hitting yet another new low on Tuesday, closing at its lowest level since November of 2020. But your next guest says there is still opportunity to be had when it comes to strategy. He is betting on platforms over services right now. For more, let's welcome in James Chalkmock. He is partner at Clockwise Capital. What does that mean, betting on platforms? I assume you don't mean shoes. Correct. By platforms, we basically define it as the more customers a business has, that results in incremental marginal utility or time savings to the customer. So the bigger the customers, the better the experience or service. You know, you can think about Something like Amazon, more suppliers, better experience for customers. Apple, more developers. Um, And on the smaller side, a company like Snowflake, the more customers that are on there, the more data and the more insights uh, those uh, customers are able to glean. uh, uh, Converse that to a services company like DocuSign. You know, these kind of companies, you know, they they go off on trying to get as much market share as, as possible. But at the end of the day, their ultimate differentiator is price. Uh, so that's how we're distinguishing kind of where we go within tech. Well, but obviously there's a, there's a much broader macro. Well, on, on, a, we on a broader macro basis, James, <laughs> stocks, yeah. pretty much all of them just keep going down. You know, not every day, but it feels like close to it right yeah. now. Before we get into sort of certain platform esque ideas, can the broader tech sector recover until interest rates stop going up? Uh, yeah, we think so. I mean, there's absolutely every reason to continue to be optimistic and bullish in terms of you know these services are inherently deflationary. So uh, the world is going to continue to go in that direction, especially dealing with the kind of CPI numbers that we've been dealing with. But ultimately, I do think right now with tech, as we're doing, you do have to take a more defensive posture. You have to lower duration, go up balance sheet, and invest in those companies with the best 
of visibility in, into earnings and cash flow, and ultimately, ideally, also have a secular tailwind to them. So we're in uncharted territory right now. I mean, if you look at you know the Fed rising raising rates, you know if you've had historically over a two hundred percent increase in rates, you know that's resulted in a deep recession. If they if Powell goes forward with one hundred fifty basis points potentially by the end of the year, that's over a five thousand percent increase in rates. So. No, we're in uncharted territory time right yeah. now. So you know, we're is taking it, a defensive posture and also being much more tactical. Is within it the good? Tech ex- space is itself. a good example and looking at some of the companies that you own and that you sort of talk about. Mm-hmm. Would a good example for our viewers and listeners be of a platform be an Airbnb? I mean, I don't know about you. Yes. When I look to travel with my family, sometimes I bring my dogs. I don't go to a hotel website anymore. I go to Airbnb. I'm not giving them a plug. I'm just simply saying it doesn't appear they have a lot of competition. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a, it comes back to the definition. Does more users equal a better experience? You know, in this case with Airbnb, it is a platform because the more supply you have, the better experience it will be for customers. So absolutely it fits that definition and, and it's a stock that we own. Uh, are we going all in on it as our biggest position? No, because we are decreasing duration. But it's one, uh, if you can stomach the volatility, it will prosper over the long term and we'd be, we're still very bullish on it. James Chalkbaugh, Clockwise Capital, looking at the platforms. Airbnb's the world. James, thank you. Thank All right, you. coming up, are you thinking about taking a trip back to Europe next year? Well, United Airlines thinks you are. We're going to tell you what they're doing ahead of it. Ahead. But right now, let's leave you with what is up and what is down. J.P. Morgan, Coca-Cola, and Intel, even some of your better performers. Boeing, Walgreen, Honeywell, some of your biggest laggards. The Exchange is back with the Dow up 75 right after this. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. All right, we call it the data bank. As you can see, welcome back. I want to talk about these markets. And it's, we're still in the green, but it's looking like hedge funds may want to take this market down again. The S&P 500 is up now just by four points. The Dow was up over 200 at one point, up 83 now. We're in the green, but only vaguely. We see what happens in the last, I don't know, two and a half hours of trading. Mixed bag, like the markets for the sectors as well. The rate-sensitive groups, real estate, utilities, they're the ones that are getting hit the most. No surprise there. Consumer staples, they're the ones that are sort of outperforming thanks to strong results from names like Pepsi, which came out this morning. Pepsi, by the way, is having its best day since April of 2020 after the company posted a beat on the top and bottom line. Pepsi also hiking its full-year guidance, saying higher prices are helping offset lower volume. There's your inflation. Higher prices for chips and soda offsetting lower volumes. Elsewhere, Moderna leading the S&P on news that the company is partnering with Merck to develop a cancer vaccine to treat patients with high-risk melanoma. They expect to report data from a Phase 2 trial later on this year. Let's hope for everybody out there suffering from it. That, indeed, that works. All right, and shares of Warner Brothers Discovery, they are higher on a report of new layoffs. This round of cuts are in its streaming marketing division. 
And as Wall Street kind of coldly does, the stock is up on the layoff news. All right, now let's get to a CNBC News update. Tyler Matheson. Tyler. All right, Brian, thank you very much. Here's what's happening at this hour. The Biden administration reportedly considering a total ban on Russian aluminum following Russia's numerous missile and drone strikes across Ukraine. That, according to Bloomberg, aluminum futures spiked as much as 7% before pairing those gains. On the news with Shep Smith tonight, a look at just who Russia is pushing into military service to fight in the war in Ukraine, plus growing dangers at Europe's largest nuclear plant. Tune in tonight at 7 Eastern. Shep Smith will bring you the news. Las Vegas Raiders' Devontae Adams has been charged with misdemeanor assault for shoving a photographer to the ground after Monday's loss to Kansas City. Police say the shove was intentional and caused whiplash and a possible minor concussion. Adams apologized for the incident on Monday almost immediately. And scientists have transplanted human neural tissue into rat brains and created hybrid cells. The Wall Street Journal says the experiment opens up new ways to research brain development and diseases of the brains. It also brings up ethical questions about animal welfare. Brian, much to think about. Back to you. There was a movie years ago, Tyler, I think like 30 years ago, called Rat Boy. And now I'm going to have to go back and watch it. I, re- I remember, remember it vaguely. It was like a vaguely. Deep, I remember the title. It was made for like 100 bucks. Rat Boy. <laughs> Tyler Matheson. Thank See you. See you, man. All right, still ahead. Interest rates sitting at a 15-year high, affordability overall at a 37-year low, and that combo having a big impact on the mortgage market. We'll talk about the implications for the overall state of housing coming up. All this, the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, for some, is back above 7% today. And a reminder, all throughout Hispanic Heritage Month, we are celebrating some of our CNBC teammates, friends, and contributors. Here's Payne Capital Senior Wealth Advisor, Courtney Garcia. My grandfather immigrated to the U.S. speaking only Spanish in hopes of obtaining a better life for his family. Two generations on, I'm happy to report that he achieved those goals. What made that possible was a strong work ethic, knowing the value of a dollar, and savings, all things that were instilled upon me at a very young age. As I now look to instill those same values upon my own children, peers, and clients, I also want to stress the importance of investing and making sure that your money is working just as hard as you are to ultimately create generational wealth for your family for years to come. As you know, mortgage rates have more than doubled over the past year, with the 30-year back above 7% in some cases. So Diana Ulick joining us now to look at the latest demand data. Is there, de- is there demand data, Diana? <laughs> no. There, I mean, there's data. There's just no demand. Look, just when you thought demand can't go any lower, you get another weekly report from the Mortgage Bankers Association. And now they're actually seeing more interest in riskier loan products. But first, take a look at the 30-year fixed. Over 7%, according to Mortgage News Daily. It started this year at 3%. As a result, refinance demand dropped another 2% last week, down 86% from a year ago, because there are just so few people who can even gain anything from doing a refi. Barely 150,000 borrowers who would qualify have rates higher than today's, and that's according to Black Knight. Now, mortgage demand from home buyers also fell 2% for the week, and it was down 39% from a year ago. 
Higher rates just make an already pricey housing market even pricier, which is why borrowers are now looking at those riskier loan products. The share of adjustable rate mortgage applications remained high last week at just under 12% of total volume. The arm share of applications was around 3% at the start of this year, and it had been for several years because rates had been so low that borrowers didn't need to take on any additional risk. Not so much now. The rate on a five-year arm is now 5.5%, so you can see the savings. Arms are considered riskier because they do inevitably adjust, but they can be fixed for up to 10 years. So it's still, you know, Brian, a pretty safe product. Good enough. Diana Olick, uh, not a lot of demand in the demand data. Diana, thank you. All right, so those higher mortgage rates Diana has talked about are pushing home affordability to a 37-year low. New data from Black Knight shows rate lockdowns in September fell about 10% from August, sitting at the lowest levels in December of 2019. What does this mean for the housing market? Joining us now is Andy Walden, VP of Enterprise Research at Black Knight. Uh, Andy, you just uh, you just heard Diana quote your data basically back to you. I mean, how would you summarize <laughs> how would you summarize the mortgage market right now? Yeah, and I mean, demand is down across the board. I mean, you saw three different things take place here over the last couple of weeks. Affordability hit the lowest level in 37 years. Refinance incentive hit the lowest level on record. And maybe more importantly for the refinance market, it became more expensive to utilize the equity that we have in homes, which is driving the majority of refinance activity right now. So for all of those different reasons, you're seeing demand pull significantly down across the market. Is this going to level off? There's obviously some kind of rate shock where buyers may be kind of in a state of disbelief. But if the rates stay here for a couple of months or a couple of quarters and you really want or need a home, do you guys think there's just going to be sort of a reluctant acceptance that this is where we are? It's going to be a little more painful. Might have to cut some costs somewhere else, but the mortgage activity will pick up. Or is it or is it going to be crushed for years? Well, I think we are nearing a bottom, right? If you look at what's been going on with interest rates and purchase market demand, I think you're you're going to reach a low here over the next couple of quarters, and, and then we'll see it flatten out. But I mean, simply put, the, the housing market and prices today aren't built for a 7% rate environment. And so you're seeing it, it choke on those 7% rate thresholds. And in many cases, it's not a, a decision. Borrowers are, are priced out of the market, uh, and it's simply unaffordable. And so I, th- I think you'll see the housing prices react to bring us a little bit more in balance. I think over time, you'll see incomes grow to bring us back into balance. But it's going to be a movement across the board, right? It's going to be a price movement. It's going to be an income movement. And it's, it's, it's likely going to take rates coming off of their current levels to, to restart the housing market. I mean, are, are you seeing homeowners, home sellers drop the price? I mean, nobody buys a house based on the price for the most part. They buy it unless you're buying all cash. You're buying on the monthly payment. Yeah. And you are seeing some interesting movements by sellers right now. So from really May through July, you were seeing a lot of inventory return to the market and you were seeing sellers kind of continue to list their homes. They've they've really backed away in August and and through September as well. And it's really held inventory relatively flat. And so you're certainly seeing some pushback from sellers saying, hey, if I can't get the price that I was getting in May, June and July of this year, I'm not interested in selling, especially if I'm going to have to take on a, a four percentage point higher interest rate to sell and buy again, you're seeing sellers kind of back away, which is putting a little bit of a sustained upward pressure on prices. But that being said, I still think it's going to be a cool to cold winter, both in terms of volumes of home sales and in terms of prices here over the next few months. Winter is coming in many ways. Andy Walden, Black Knight, thank you very much. All right, coming up, international travel is back in a big way, and United is making a big bet that that trend will not only continue 
but improve. As we know, though, air travel's been a bit <clears throat> turbulent lately. United's plan and some of the headwinds next with Phil LeBeau. Stick around. And now, CNBC Trend Tracker. We talked a few minutes ago about how the traders seem to want to take this market down, and indeed they have, at least for the S&P and NASDAQ. They're not down by much. I mean, less like, you know, six points, but they are in the red. Now, the Dow slightly positive, up 26 points. We'll see where the markets end up. All right, some encouraging signs that the travel industry is really returning to normal. United Airlines expanding international routes beginning next summer. Phil Boat joining us now with the details and what could maybe, maybe throw a wrench into some of those plans. Phil. Brian, you were just in Europe. I mean, the mm. flight, I, I'm guessing your flight and the airports there, packed, correct? Everything was packed. Been packed for a year. Yeah. And I know somebody who's going to Paris at the end of this month. They're expecting it to be full on the plane. Look, the bottom line is this. Travel, transatlantic travel that started this summer, it's continuing now. Does it continue in the spring? Hard to say, but United is expecting that there's going to be plenty of demand next summer. Summer is usually the peak time for transatlantic travel, and that's why the company has announced it is once again going to be increasing the number of flights and destinations when it comes to flying to Europe. Here's what United will be doing. Its capacity will increase another 10% next summer versus summer of 22. Nine new nonstops, three new destinations, including Dubai, Stockholm, uh, Malaga, Spain. The bottom line is this. When you look at European travel, yes, we've seen the stories and the headlines about airports being filled with long lines because they don't have the staffing over there. For the most part, that has calmed down considerably. The airports have improved. Their staffing, their restrictions are starting to come down. International traffic, however, and keep in mind, we're also including China in this. So that's a big reason why it's down 35 to 40 percent. But as you take a look at United and American, remember, American reported yesterday that it's going to be seeing better than expected numbers for the third quarter. Uh, They are both expecting strong demand through the holidays. We will be hearing from United and American when they report report their Q3 results next week. We'll also be talking with the CEOs of those airlines next week. Meanwhile, you've got Delta. It reports Q3 results before the bell tomorrow morning. Wouldn't be surprised if we see them report strong revenue, higher than expected margins. Lots to discuss with Delta CEO Ed Bastian. You don't want to miss what he has to say. That's coming up tomorrow morning, a Squawk Box exclusive. Uh, Ed's always very candid about the state of the economy. Curious what he thinks about what we're seeing in terms of You know, these projections, Brian, that we might be sliding towards a recession. Does that impact future bookings? We'll talk about that with Ed. Yeah, looking forward to that. And also maybe talk about airline fares. They're still unbelievable. All right, let's pivot a bit. Uh, GM with some really interesting news. I mean, I'm not going to say that GM wants to become Tesla, but they're making another move, which sounds like they're trying to become sort of like a Tesla. Well, not necessarily like a Tesla. I think all automakers realize As EVs become more popular and prevalent, and we're just scratching the surface right now, 
As that happens, more people will have a home charging station, maybe a home power wall, someplace where you can store energy. And what GM is doing with SunPower, uh, with PG&E out in California, which they are working on right now, is the ability for you to take the power from your vehicle. Let's say you have an electric Silverado in a couple of years. You can take that and give it back to the utility or power your home. I mean, the Silverado has the ability or will have the ability to power a home for 21 days. Think about that. As we see more of this instability with the grid, Brian, that's going to become much more important. And you'll see people say, I want to get into the energy ecosystem, whether it's General Motors, whether it's Tesla or Ford or whoever. Philbo, appreciate it. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to the interview tomorrow you with bet. the Delta CEO. All right, still ahead. Third quarter earnings just around the corner. Now, many fear they and the guidance from companies may not be pretty. So how exactly do you trade it right now? Your next guest bringing you two picks, including this tech company, down more than 20% this year that he says could be a good buy right now. The name to solve the mystery chart. Next. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. Third quarter earnings season right around the corner. The bank's reporting at the end of this week. Seems like the same block, not just the corner. Our next guest is looking for ways to safeguard the portfolios. His expectations are pretty tough, and he's got two picks he might want to hang on to for the long haul. Let's bring in Delano Sapporo. He is CEO of New Street Advisors, of course, a CNBC contributor. We gave a, a mystery chart going into, the, going into the commercial break. The answer to that tech giant that you think is a good long-haul company is... Brian, it is Apple. I oh. think, you know, a, a bellwether. I guess uh, CMGI. I was wrong. <laughs> very, very wrong on that one. But yeah, just it's a bellwether name. And I think uh, of the mega cap, it's been the top performer um, so far this year. And I think, you know, some of that momentum has been under pressure here. As you saw that there was a little bit of a less uh, demand. They were showing poising for less demand for their new slate of products. But I think, you know, it's actually been met with order strength, pre-order strength strength, especially with the iPhone 14 Pro Max. Uh, so I think that's poised to be a top seller for them. And obviously, you know, if you're looking at what's happening in the market, we're still seeing uh, different things as far as inflation, raising rates. There's opportunities in the Apple play, I believe, Brian. Is there any risk to Apple? I mean, I know all the bull cases. What's what's the risk? Just everyone holds on their phone for 10 years? <laughs> That, that is the, the big risk is consumer. And I think that's the one area where for investors, you want to be watching for their earnings to see how they're showing consumer demand. We're looking at other companies, like say Pepsi, for example, they're showing resiliency in their consumer and resiliency in their demand. I think for, for Apple, it's going to be a little bit more of obviously higher price points for a lot of their products. And so that may cut into consumer demand. That's the big risk. Obviously, you have supply chain issues and disruptions um, overseas. That's another risk, and that could slow down meeting what, what demand is there. Um, so Q3, Q, uh, Q4, excuse me, and Q1 of 2023 are areas where there will be risk. And I think there could be a potential pullback in the stock, which will obviously uh, could potentially be a great opportunity for long-term investors. I, I see what you did there. I was going to ask you about Pepsi, but you just slid it. You just slid it right in there. You must like those numbers that you heard today. I mean, they're selling. They're raising prices. There's your inflation. They, 
yes, they are raising prices. They're able to show they have resiliency in their demands, able to raise prices and price, uh, pass on that price to consumers. Um, they've actually raised projections for their third time this year for full year revenue growth from 10% to 12%. So they're showing strength. And obviously, it's a staple that's performed well. So this is an opportunity for investors to have part of that portfolio. Pepsi, Coca-Cola is actually having their earnings in a couple of, uh, couple of weeks. So I think you'll see similar strength there in the stock. And obviously, beating earnings expectations for Pepsi by 13 cents and expanding profits, earnings by by 20%. That's a strong yep. quarter. And, and it's really something that shows to what kind of environment we're in right now. Alana, always good hearing from you. Thank you very much. You have a great day. Appreciate you, Brian. All right. Still ahead, back in June, Intel announced it was pausing all hiring in its client computing group. They make desktops and laptop chips, shares down more than 40% since then, and now reportedly job cuts, not just hiring pauses, are coming. K-Parts with that story next. Slowing demand and continued supply chain problems are decimating shipments of PCs worldwide. It fell 15% in the third quarter from a year ago. That, according to IDC data, that is taking a toll on names like Intel. Shares down more than 50% this year. And after announcing a hiring pause back in June, Intel now reportedly set to cut thousands of jobs. Christina Partsinevelis joining us now from the NASDAQ with more. They went from a pause to a cut. Not good news. Well, that's because Intel's main business is PC processors. And with demand, like you mentioned, hitting a 20-year low, the company is pretty much forced now to make some tough choices. So Intel tells me, this was last night, they won't comment on the rumors, but Bloomberg is reporting thousands of job cuts will be announced around Intel's Q3 earnings report on October 27th. All the cuts are expected to be company-wide, with sales and marketing taking the biggest hit. But Brian, I was literally just at Intel's campus in Arizona two weeks ago reporting on how Intel needs to fill 7,000 construction jobs, hire an additional 3,000 new corporate workers for its foundries. And so that's putting Intel in quite the spot, quite the conundrum. Accept government money from the $52 billion CHIPS Act so that Intel can invest in its products and manufacturing to regain its prior leading positioning while also cutting expenses, and especially not sacrificing the work on those new products. So Intel shows, like you mentioned, Brian, down over 50%, actually just off 2.5% from their 52-week lows. But these potential layoffs come as the tech se- sector heads into the crucial holiday period, where demand for consumer electronics tends to boom. This year, though, might not necessarily be the case. Also, a new structure in some of those factories, the one you were literally just in? Literally. Yeah, the foundries, these are the chip manufacturers. Uh, They're going to work like contract operations, so they're going to build chips not only for Intel, but also for other chip companies. Previously, Intel used these foundries almost exclusively for their own chips. This shows Intel is getting serious about becoming a manufacturing hub for all and not granting favorable access just for its own products. So that's a big change, and accounting purposes will change too. You said shift. I heard you. I did say shift. You said shift. It's a big shift change. Shift change. Shift. (laughs) Christina, thank you. That does it for us. Power Lunch. Their shift begins right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio... And producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. 
It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Mm-hmm.